episode, right? I'm Alistair Stevens. And Tom Cruise is Joel Goodson in Risky Business. excited for this one. This is Tom Cruise's first major real starring role. This is mm-hmm. what catapults him into fame, into stardom, into Hollywood. This is what makes him a leading man and the guy. 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yep. So even if we don't think it's an amazing film, it definitely is like a cultural touchstone. People love this movie. It's the first one. It's the first Cruise movie. When you're scrolling through that list on IMDb, oh, yeah. it's the first one that you will recognize, even if you'd never seen it. Which I had never which had. Which you had never seen. But of course I, I know. Honestly, had watched it two decades ago, almost none of it lingered in the memory. Yeah. I, yeah. Was, I was basically coming to it fresh. But this is sliding in socks. This is sliding in <laughs> socks, the motion picture. <laughs> that scene has endured so powerfully, has been parodied so many times, yes. has been referenced so many times. It's wild to think that it's here in the middle of a film that is not that. That sequence is iconic for a reason, for sure. Yeah. And the iconicity is why we are here. It's interesting that having spent the last four episodes talking about Tom Cruise, movie star, icon, this is the first moment when he is Tom Cruise. And it's remarkable how fully formed he is in this film. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Despite being so young. Yeah. Well, 22. Wow, looking so young. Playing 17, yeah. But he's here. He's got the look. He's got the voice. Isn't quite yes. finished, but it's it's moving along. His laugh isn't where it's going to be, but it's recognizable yeah, already. He's not quite as twinkly yet as he yep. later becomes. Not quite as like gregarious and charming. He's still sure. a little bit aw shucks, and he's still got his hands in his pockets just a little bit. Or, yeah, yeah his thumbs tucked in his pockets yes. anyway. Consistently <laughs> through this film, it was wild. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to cover in this movie, so before we get into it, you have to play the trailer game, just in case anybody might not know exactly what goes down in this movie. If anybody doesn't know exactly what goes down in this movie, (laughs) I promise you, I give you my word that my improvised trailer will not help them. It's going to communicate very little of substance, (laughs) I promise you. When Joel Goodson's parents go out of town for a week, he is faced with temptation of the salacious kind. (laughs) After all, it's 1983. What good little Reaganite wouldn't want to start a high-class brothel in suburban Chicago? He'll take care of his high school math class by counting the money. He'll take care of his economics class by ensuring that supply meets demand. (laughs) He'll take care of his psych class by dealing with the weird Oedipal undercurrent in this film as he protects his mother's precious and fragile egg. Tom Cruise, Rebecca De Mornay, drinking whiskey, getting frisky, risky business. Yes! yes! <laughs> you know, some people would have hoped that we would make it through the trailer game before mentioning Oedipus. But wasn't meant to be. <laughs> Not this time. It's all over this film in a weird, weird way. They even like call out to it, though, which is interesting. Yes. Yeah. But very late and insubstantially. Yes. Yeah. We'll get to it. Yes. We'll get to it. Okay. I can't wait to get into the background around this film because it is such an interesting and in some ways very sad story. You have to tell me because I can tell watching this movie that it is not what the director intended or the director doesn't know what he's doing. But it's one of those two things and I can't wait for you to tell me. In a couple of different ways, I think that we are faced with that kind of of contest, that kind of friction here. 
Writer and director Paul Brickman was born in Chicago in 1949, and he grew up in the suburbs of Highland Park. He graduated from Claremont McKenna College in California. He writes two scripts for Paramount as a starting screenwriter. Weirdly, The Bad News Bears in Breaking Training, which is the second Bad News Bears movie and we starred, just talked about as we Bad mentioned News Bears. last That's week, so weird. Jackie Earl Haley. The second script is for Jonathan Demme's film Citizen Band, which was later mm-hmm. re-edited and renamed to Handle With Care. A pretty influential early Demi work. Okay. I should mention at this point that for a lot of the background on Risky Business specifically, I am indebted to a variety piece from 2001, all the way back in 2001, written by Dana Harris, which works as a kind of oral history for the film. The link Very cool. to that is in the show notes. I suggest you check it out. So Brickman, coming off the success of those two scripts, pitches Risky Business to Warner Brothers. They like it. They hire him on the spot. He writes the script. He delivers it on schedule. And they immediately put it into turnaround, which is basically when a studio believes that the money that they have spent on a film has already exceeded the earning potential Uh of that film, they just freeze it. They will halt production and wait in a nebulous, passive kind of way for for someone to come in with more money, for the terms of the contract to change, for someone to die who is being owed money by this production that they will Yikes. no longer have to pay, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. When you go into turnaround, you are basically done. Yeah. Scripts languish in turnaround for decades, and oh, some are no. just, many are just never made. That's not to say that every script that goes into turnaround is immediately dead, though. The most famous story of a movie surviving turnaround is E.T., the extraterrestrial. Wow. E.T. is originally conceived as a movie called Night Skies, a more frightening kind of story where a group of aliens come to Earth and terrorize a family, except that the son makes friends with the one nice alien called Uh Buddy. Spielberg takes that script to Columbia, and they like it. They buy it. But as he is revising it with the help of his writers, it's turning more and more into the E.T. that we know today. Columbia gets cold feet. They don't think it's good. They don't think it's scary. They don't want to do it. Mm. So they put it in turnaround. Spielberg, though, is already Spielberg. So he can go to Universal and say, you need to buy this picture for $1 million from Columbia. Universal thinks that's a great idea. They buy it. Columbia agrees. Columbia demands, though, on top of the million dollars, 5% of the return should the film ever be released. Universal says, okay, we'll do that. They produce it. They release it. E.T. makes just under $800 million worldwide off a production budget of $10 million. Wow. John Veach, the head of Columbia at the time, said that Columbia made more money off of their 5% of E.T. than from any of the films Columbia actually released that same year. Wow. That's awesome. So turnaround isn't always death. Mm -hmm. Turnaround obviously wasn't death for risky business either. It becomes clear over time that the reason it's in turnaround is because they wanted a more outrageous sex comedy. They wanted something like Porky's. They wanted something like Animal House, that kind of Really outrageous. That kind of tone. They were also nervous about the inclusion of a sex worker who was, in this draft of the script, 16 years old. Yeah, I wondered. Because Rebecca DeMornay has the line, kids our age, something. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Which is clearly a relic of an earlier draft because she is canonically supposed to be 21. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It looks like there's no hope that this film will ever see the light of day, but record producer David Geffen reads the script. He likes it. He does ask Brickman to age up the sex worker from 16. Yes. Brickman agrees, and Risky Business is back in business with the plan that it would be the first film for the Geffen Film Company, which perhaps ironically 
has a pre-existing distribution deal with Warner Brothers. So Warner winds up distributing this film anyway. Mm. They're not entirely happy about it, as we'll see. They audition Sean Penn, Gary Sinise, John Cusack, Kevin Bacon, all for the role of Joel. But Tom Cruise was in L.A. for one day on a shooting break from The Outsiders, and they were immediately taken with him. That's so great. He gives this account of walking in. I'm missing my tooth. My hair is all greased up. They still <laughs> like me for some reason. I don't know why. He apparently has a great deal of personal respect for Brickman as a writer and mm. a director. Michelle Pfeiffer was offered the role of Lana, but she oh, turned it down. That. Brooke Shields was also considered, but chose to withdraw her name from consideration because, weirdly, she had just enrolled in Princeton in real life. Wow. <laughs> so Good she went off to her. get her education. Brooke Shields is like the secret hero of this podcast. The secret hero of early 80s yeah. cinema, for sure. Wow. Among other actors to audition were Sharon Stone, Kim Bassinger, and weirdly, Megan Mullally of Will and Grace Whoa. and Parks and Rec yes. and, you know, being married to Nick Offerman. Yes. Megan Mullally is in this film. She Holy is smokes. one of the sex workers who shows up to the party at Joel's house. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Rebecca De Mornay's first audition was apparently terrible. Yeah. The casting director saw Shocking. potential in her, though, okay. unlike you, <laughs> and worked with her for two days before they went to a 5 a.m. screen test with Cruz before he flew back to Oklahoma to finish The Outsiders. Cruz is also, at this point, considering a rival offer from Francis Ford Coppola to be the lead in Rumblefish, Coppola's next film, his second adaptation of an S.E. Hinton novel. That's so interesting. We apparently have to watch that one because my film nerd friends from film school say that it's great. We should. Absolutely. I'd recommend that that be on the list for the Patreon bonus episode. <laughs> yeah. But I think you've already decided that's, that's going to be Dirty Nancy. <laughs> By Cruz's own account, the screen test with DeMorney was not at all good. Yeah. But Brickman was apparently convinced, and the two of them were so hired on. on the spot. Okay. Production, by all accounts, goes very smoothly. They shoot in Chicago. When the film is finished, though, it is shown to test audiences, and those test audiences do not like it. The ending, Ooh. in particular, is very unpopular. And David Gaffin persuades Brickman to shoot another ending, an alternate ending, and then test them side by side, see which one the audiences prefer. The replacement is much more popular, uh -huh. and that is the one that's in the movie now. You have to tell me, do you know in the alternate ending, in the first ending, in the actual ending? In the director's original ending? Yeah. Was it all a dream? It was not. There is no... Jesus Christ! I know. It's so a Look, dream! There's okay. no version of this where it's a dream. Whoa! The original version I is... I feel played. ...much, much darker. It is much sadder. Joel basically does not get away with it. Oh. Yeah. Yikes. Okay. Brickman says, quote, I felt the whole film was compromised by this cheesy, happy ending. I came very close to walking off the film. Some critics picked up on what they saw there as phony, and what can you say? Yeah. You're a smart critic. End quote. The conflict between Brickman and Geffen soured their relationship permanently, and also left Brickman disillusioned by the industry as a whole. There was no premiere for Risky Business. There was wow. not even a cast and crew screening of the film. Warner Brothers tried to minimize the release. They opened it on only 670 screens. This is the same weekend when Return of the Jedi, Holy in its smokes. 11th week, is still on 1,700 screens. Holy smokes. Despite this, the movie is a hit. It stays in theaters for 22 weeks and makes $64 million off a budget of $6 million. 
So an outright hit. Wow. 64 million off of 6 million. Okay. By any measure, a huge smash hit. I just don't think it's very good. Well, that's a different conversation, I think. But the audience clearly did respond to it. They clearly responded to Cruz. They clearly responded to Rebecca de Mornay, who would go on to a really decent career after this. But the bitterness remained. In 1997, when the movie was released on DVD, Warner ignored Brickman's request to include his original ending, despite the fashion of the time being to stuff your DVD with every bonus feature you could think of. They also refused to record commentaries from the cast or crew or add anything besides the original theatrical trailer to the DVD release. Wow. I'm bummed for the people who bought the DVD because I did have a couple of DVDs that I got and that's all I got actually was the theatrical trailer. It was always so disappointing. It's so disappointing. Like, like, you wanted all those extras, especially, like, little deleted scenes. Deleted w- scenes were the shit. Goofs. You goofs. want goof-em-ups. You do want the goofs. Yeah. You want the outtakes. Yeah. That was you always, want, yes, that was gold on sure. a DVD release. Yeah, bloopers. Yeah, yeah. gotta get them bloops. <laughs> I want to see the part where he slides on his socks and falls on his ass. <laughs> that is every other parody. Oh, sure. <laughs> I bet of it course. is. Yeah. <laughs> In 2003, for the 20th anniversary of the film, David Geffen was asked about a re-release including the original ending, and he said that, quote, It sells a great deal every year on video and DVD. There's no reason to re-release it. In 2008, Uh however, Risky Business's 25th anniversary, and the same year that David Geffen suddenly and mysteriously resigns from DreamWorks and leaves the film industry completely, there is at last a DVD and Blu-ray re-release of the movie, including... A brand new commentary from Brickman, producer John Avnet, and Tom Cruise. He comes back in 2008, 25 oh years later, to record this commentary track. I'm so stoked. It also includes a 25-year retrospective documentary on the film and the ending. Yay! I'm so excited. I have to pull back the curtain, too, to tell everybody that we now have this DVD because you sleuthed it out today. And went down to Noble, which we've already mentioned before, the little town that's close to us where the kids talk like cowboys, <laughs> and went to their little library. And now that DVD is sitting just a few feet it's away from right me. Here. And I can't wait. We to have see not the bonus watched stuff. We haven't the watched the bonus ending. Yet. We're going to watch it and we're going to talk about it yes. for free over on the Patreon. You don't uh. need to pledge your support over on Patreon to listen to that. You can head over there right now, probably by the time this episode drops. <laughs> you can head right on over there. And listen to, I don't know, what will probably be 10 or 15 minutes of us You're talking hilarious. about hilarious. Yeah, 10 ending. or 15 minutes. Yes. Sorry, I we meant get 10 in or 15 Alistair minutes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anywhere up to an hour. Really. Yes. <laughs> in any case, disillusioned as he was, Brickman goes on to write a few scripts and directs one more movie, 1990's Men Don't Leave, which is the big screen debut of Chris O'Donnell. But his relationship with Hollywood never mm. recovers. I have seen suggestions online, and this is obviously the kind of thing that is very difficult to verify by its nature, but I've seen suggestions that he is known as a very safe pair of hands who can deliver an uncredited rewrite should you need one. Ooh, I like that. Which is a very lucrative line of work. Yes, it sure is. Yes. In an interview with Salon in 2013, Brickman said, quote, Some people like the visibility. I don't. I'm more from the J.D. Salinger school. Wow. So that is the behind the scenes story of Risky Business. Okay. That is why the ending is as odd as it yeah. is, particularly that last shot of the two of them walking through the it's trees in the beautiful. Park. It's a really pretty shot. It's a great looking what shot. What the hell are we doing? Yeah. Brickman has an undeniable eye. I yes. think there are many beautifully composed shots. Yeah. I really like the way he's moving the camera too, the way that he's playing with it. Completely agree. The POV work that we get is really strong. 
It's, oh, you didn't like uh, that? I don't know. POV work is always divisive. Yes, it's interesting, but it did not always work for me. No. Again, I was just, I was so confused. You guys, really, <laughs> okay. I was absolutely certain. This is it. Okay. Yeah. I was just so certain the way this movie rolls out that this was an extended fantasy that this kid was having because we already, we absolutely start. The first line is, the dream is always the same. He's smoking a cigarette and he walks us through this dream that he has. In the Ray-Bans with the cigarette hanging yeah. from his lip that he will, that's the same position as he will be in at the end of the film. Right. Yeah. Right. So just makes sense to me. Like everything I know about filmmaking is like, okay, I'm going on this journey with this kid in his imagination or a story that he's telling me. There's voiceover. So someone's telling me a story that's already happened. Right. But then suddenly we seem to be present tense. It seems like he's not telling the story anymore. Mm -hmm. Like now we're just here and we're with him. So much so that we've got the camera sitting over his shoulder and the parents are talking into the lens like we are Tom Cruise. Right. You know what I'm talking about when they like go to the airport yeah, no, and stuff. Yeah. That, we get a that, pair of really great POV sequences there that that are my favorite POV sequences in the film as okay, a whole. Yeah. Okay. Okay. They're, they're interesting. Yeah. But again, when I was watching it, I was like, why are we doing right. this? Why are you putting me so deep in his POV? Like the filmmaker is doing this for a reason. The, you know, director of photography for why have they done this? So I'm trying to figure that out. And I'm thinking to myself, maybe it's so that the next time I get a dream sequence or a fantasy sequence, I don't notice it as much because I'm so in this kid's POV. So this is like already my thought process, right? Then we get another fantasy sequence where he's mm -hmm. fantasizing about screwing the babysitter or trying to... <laughs> poor kid right and then and all the cops are outside between those two we have him playing poker with his friends and relating what is apparently an entirely different story yes about a sexual encounter that didn't happen that definitely did not happen yeah yeah so i just don't trust anything this kid is saying no. at films this point. teach you how to watch them yes texts teach you how to read them and this text is teaching you that he is a dreamer and a fantasist. Yes. And that you ought not to trust either what he says or what is shown on screen. Yes. Yeah. Which is why when, like, first we get the sex worker that the friend hired. Who sure. Comes Jackie. In. Jackie. Yeah. Who was terrific. Jackie leaves. When Lana comes in, Tom Cruise is asleep on the couch when she comes in. And she just walks through the house. We hear the click clack of her heels. And the whole sequence where he just gets up and is immediately ready to just undress her and rising wind, the French doors the open, French doors the curtains open billow. And cur yes. And like all the leaves blow in and suddenly he's just like some kind of Casanova type that's screwing her on the stairs. Stairs, very uncomfortable for sex. I don't think that they <laughs> oh, no. are. They had to have sex on the stairs because how else could we pan to real life pictures of, of Tom, Tom Cruise, Cruise as a very young child? <laughs> so weird. So weird. It's so weird. So then I was like, oh, this is fun. This is like a fantasy. Sure, sure, sure. And the next morning she's still there. And I'm like, okay, how long is this fantasy sequence going to last? So then I'm fully two thirds of the way through the movie before I'm like, this is a fantasy sequence though, right? Like we're still in it. We're still in it. Especially because it it works like a stress dream in a lot of ways too. Like just like his fantasy did, you know, he's like sitting there like actually trying to whack off yep. and... Instead, he he ends up dreaming about his parents yelling at him through a bullhorn about All the how cops, his and parents, the cops, yeah, her father, yeah, yeah, everybody about how he'll never amount to anything if he can't, you know, straighten up and fly right and not think about girls so much. I guess I don't know, but we get him doing the car chase and suddenly being so cool with his friend in the car. And I wrote down, I was like, okay, so the friend is probably here because if 
you're fantasizing about something, you need someone to witness your cool. So that's why the friend's in the car. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. None of this, it turns out, is true. It's just me well, and my brain. It's kind of impossible to refute, though. It is a perfectly legitimate read of this text. Uh, that it is all just happening in I don't his know. Head. It feels like a bad Reddit column or something. No, and that's the thing is that I usually hate that kind of facile yeah. interpretation. Oh, my God, but what <laughs> if it was a dream? No. <laughs> But my point is, this is not that kind of facile interpretation. You are absolutely respecting the text and trusting it to guide you. Yes. And it guides you in a weird direction. Completely. Completely. It's the strangest thing. The car going into the lake is such a stress dream thing. Like when you can't find the brakes. Opening it and the fish coming out. Yes. Weird moment. Weird. The kind of heightened, surrealistic detail that would be in a dream. That you would expect. But without any meaningful resolution yeah there's not really anything that we can do with this except also in your fantasy definitely the beautiful girl that you paid for sex says i'll just be your girlfriend for a few days and make you breakfast well that is an entirely different conversation that we will get to Uh, because the question uh, of her honesty oh yes is a really interesting one yes that is true that is true i can see where this was intended to be a more serious darker film because it is shot like you said, so beautifully. And there are so many interesting things to unpick. It's really dissatisfying how none of those things amount to anything in the end. It is clearly a film that is striving for a great deal, that Mm -hmm. is reaching very high indeed. And it's entirely possible, I think, that some of those details, which could be interpreted as proof of dream sequence imagery or fantasy imagery, are instead kind of literary symbolism. Right. Like mm. it is possible to interpret Rebecca de Mornay coming into the house, like flo- being immediately undressed, the, the French doors being blown open, the rising wind outside yeah. as being not real within the frame of the text. But it's also possible, I think, to interpret that as the rising passion, you know, nature right, like, overwhelming these young bodies. It's like, very Harlequin romance in that moment. It is in that moment and only in that moment because it's otherwise weirdly separate from the act of sex, if not the emotional entanglement of sex. Yeah. With all that said, let's take a look at our cast, shall we? Let's take a look at Rebecca De Mornay. <laughs> you don't care for her at all. I don't. I do think she's lovely, obviously, and she has some nice moments in this movie, but most of the time I find her very just wooden and not not good, just not yeah. a good actress. But you, I think you've liked her in other things, right? Yes. I mean, <laughs> my fondness for Rebecca De Mornay is inseparable from her attractiveness I, she sure. is she is stunningly attractive she is just a very gorgeous woman who was at the height of her power and popularity right when i needed her to be at yes. the age of you know 13 14 <laughs> i was a big fan as we've discussed before on this podcast weirdly i was a big fan of the three musketeers where yeah. she plays milady de winter and is just so hot is just so hot sure. that film i think is 1993 so okay. I was 15 years old. Yeah, yeah. All so right, fair enough. a lot of, of my whole Rebecca de Mornay thing. I will say, I thought that she was broadly very good in this film. I thought that she acquitted herself better in Risky Business than I have seen her acquit herself in other things. We okay. just recently watched the uh, ABC miniseries of The Shining with Steven Weber, wherein she plays Wendy. And is not good at all in that series. I mean, that's not a good series at all, but she is particularly bad. I liked her as Lana. She has some real moments. Okay. All right. 
I would have liked to see Michelle Pfeiffer, but okay. So by the time that she gets to Risky Business, Rebecca de Mornay has one on-screen credit. Weirdly, 1981's One from the Heart, which was the movie that Francis Ford Coppola directed before he directed The Outsiders. That's it so is weird. the smallest industry yeah, in the world. It is a small industry. On the set of One from the Heart, she met Harry Dean Stanton, and the two started dating. De Mornay was 22. Stanton was 55. Holy smokes. That is a 33-year age gap. Oh, I hate it. During the filming of Risky Business, however, De Mornay and Cruz began a relationship that would last for two and a half years, finally ending in Aww. 1985. After the breakup, De Mornay and Stanton would become very close friends for the rest of his life. He died, unfortunately, in 2017. Wow. The last role he filmed before his death, yeah. Carl Rod, in the third season of Twin Peaks. Yeah. Later, De Mornay would date and be engaged to Leonard Cohen, with whom oh, she had a 25-year cool. age gap. Oh, so apparently, God. just very she fond just of older daddies. men. She yeah. was always very protective of Harry Dean Stanton's reputation. He had a reputation for liking much younger women, even mm. back in the early 1980s. But she was always very protective of him and the way that he had treated her. And as I say, they were very close friends for the better okay. part of three decades. To kind of put this in its proper context, perhaps, we should note that De Mornay is only two years older than Cruz, even though Lana is five years older sure. than Joel okay. in this film. She is most famous, of course, for that early 90s period where she stars in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, directed by Curtis Hanson, mm -hmm. who we mentioned last week because he also directed Losing It. And then, yeah, in 1993, The Three Musketeers. Okay. Oh, that's also Chris O'Donnell in that one, right? It's the smallest town. It's the smallest in, yeah. Okay. okay. But the film isn't just Rebecca De Mornay and Tom Cruise. We also have the debut performances of two of the harder working character actors mm -hmm. of the 1980s, Curtis Armstrong, who goes on to play Booger in Revenge of the Nerds and is perhaps best known as Burt Viola in the fantastic Moonlighting, which is just coming to streaming services oh. now. If you haven't <gasps> seen is? Moonlighting, watch Moonlighting. It's great. Of course, he's... I say best known for Moonlighting, mm -hmm. best known in this house as Robert Martin, the guy who can't stop drinking water in season two, episode 10 <laughs> and episode 11 of, of Grey's Anatomy. Anatomy. We also have Bronson Pinchot, who appears the following year as Serge in Beverly Hills Cop, a mm -hmm. performance with a silly accent. And then starting in 1986, stars as Balky in 151 episodes of Perfect Strangers, a yes. performance with a silly accent. <laughs> I think he's terrific in this film. He is. He is fun. Yeah. I've he's never... wearing that same jacket again from Losing It that I, to that I talked about. It's the, the same like, style. The dad jacket that's sometimes <laughs> navy. He's wearing that. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just ubiquitous. I've never seen Perfect Strangers, but I remember him very fondly from uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. I've never he's seen in one that. And three. Okay. It's funny because I actually, the, the show that I thought of was Bosom Buddies, but that's something different. What's Bosom Buddies? Bosom Buddies predates this film. It's Wild. It's very early 1980s. It's, that's the Tom Hanks one, right? I, yeah, I think so. Tom it's, Hanks it's... and someone. Yeah. <laughs> They're shouting it out at home. Hey, get in touch. LastStarPod at gmail.com. We should also note the appearance of Joe Pantaleano. Oh, of course. Yes. Just such a hardworking, brilliant, magnetic character actor mm -hmm. here with a very terrible haircut. He's yes. been bouncing around the industry for 10 years already before he even gets to Risky Business. He is, of course, best known. I don't even need to say what he's best known for. He's best known for Memento and for being the terrible stepdad in that Percy Jackson movie that one time. And oh, for yeah. eating the world's best filmed steak. Yes. In The Matrix. Looked very good. He's 
really good in this film. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed him. Yeah, he's great. He seems to almost have a better handle on the tone of this film or one of the possible tones of this film than any of the other actors. I really like what he's bringing. Yeah, I liked him. He does have that. He's got a seriousness for sure. He's taking himself and his character seriously. But it's just such a bizarre film. I mean, Mm. he's the pimp. So, again, we get a reprehensible pimp, which is nice that the pimps are at least always reprehensible. Except Tom Cruise is kind of the pimp, too, right? This is part of the problem. It's a problem. Let's get into it. Let's Let's figure it all out. We open on neon purple credits over Chicago as seen from the L train. Can we talk about Chicago films for a minute? Absolutely. I just love how Chicago... they they start you're absolutely right immediately from the l train so you know where you are but there's something so different about the feel of movies that are shot in chicago la has got all of that you know sunshine and palm trees and they try to make it look like everything else but it's never anything else it's always la new york is very special but it doesn't have the same i don't know there's like a glamour to new york and a wealth that reads to New York. Chicago, this is like the rich part of Chicago, mm-hmm. the suburbs. But you get this like upper middle class about it that you just don't get on either coast. It's still the Midwest. Yeah. It's it's the yeah. wealthy Midwest, but the it's still Midwest. the Midwest. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. I like that this was shot in Chicago. I think the Midwestern part of his character made a lot of sense to me. I feel like... If you put it in California, it would have been sillier. And if you put it in New York, it would have been sadder. Right? I mean, it is set in Chicago because Brickman is from Chicago. And this is like an idea that he has had for a long period. He grew up in very much this kind of community. Yeah, you said Highland Park. Yeah. Yeah, So that is probably almost entirely the real reason that it is set here. Mm -hmm. But you're right. It gives us that Midwestern Americana. Yeah. It gives us an older sense of place and of personhood in yeah. a sense it's you're right it's not the coasts it's not progressive right. in the same way right. it's doing yes. something more grounded and more interesting yeah. which of course not ultimately the film will not deliver on yeah but it's still an interesting attempt i think so we transition to joel wearing ray-bans smoking recollecting a dream as we said he yeah, goes to his neighbor's house great close up just his eye under the sunglasses yeah which That's we again so cool but again it sets yeah. a tone not appearing in this film <laughs> Yes. Like it's a really noir-inflected well, start. I do think that there's a read of this film, which is... Which is a little noir. Ooh, I'm just seeing Darker, it. yeah. Yeah. There is a story. Noir films, noir stories, are stories of men who have been corrupted. They are right. They are good men in a corrupt system, uh-huh, but that system uh-huh. has brung them low. Usually yes. at the hands of a woman. Usually. I was going to say, we're, it doesn't take here. a lot to change our perspective. It would take a different ending, of course. Of course. But it doesn't take a lot to change this into a really viable pulp noir structure. Yeah. It makes a lot more sense to me thinking of it pulpy, actually. Mm -hmm. It really does. The whole train thing, even the the doors blowing open when he first gets with her is all elevated in that way that pulp is. That's interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. So we can gloss the dream really quickly. He goes to his neighbor's house. No one's around. He hears the shower running. Upon investigation, he finds a very hot woman, all kinds of sudsy. She invites him to wash her back, but he loses her in the steam, arriving instead in an exam hall. He has blown it. He will never get to college. Right. You are absolutely right that everything about the sequence 
tells us to expect more dreams. Which we almost get because we do get the fantasy sequence later. Yeah. But that's more, yeah, fantasizing than dreaming, dreaming. We cut to what we take to be the present. I'm now going to have to equivocate right? every time. <laughs> I'm we cut sorry, to but what we think is uh... the present in the real world with Joel playing cards with his friends, literally telling tales out of school about right. a close encounter of the girl kind. <laughs> close encounter of the sexual kind. Later, Joel is making excuses as to why he didn't close the deal, as it were, while his friend Miles advises him that sometimes you just have to say, what the fuck? It appears as though we are supposed to take this as a thesis for the film. Yes, they double down on it at the end. Yeah, well, we recapitulate sometimes it most of the way through. Say, but yeah, yeah, that's true. That's yes, true. and his father, sometimes you say, what the what heck? The heck? <laughs> Which I really like. Again, it's cute. This film is a little bewildering, but there are lots of moment-to-moment dialogue choices, which are very strong. There's mm-hmm. a lot of really great work in both the script and in the direction of this film. What do you think of this idea that Joel saying what the fuck is responsible for his downfall, his challenges, his his Yeah, but also his little stroke of genius, if that's what you want to call it. It's presented in the film as a smashing success, right? Well, kind of. What? Not not quite. His little business venture, his his risky business. Sure. Except but the even, Guido, so not really. But, well, I don't know. The very last line of the, of the film is that he made that he grossed eight thousand dollars in one night. Yes, but we are supposed to believe that he then pays that all back to Guido in exchange for his parents' possessions. Pretty close, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then he. So he doesn't leave the story richer than he yeah. entered it. Probably $500 down because he cashed that bond. God, yes. Does he leave it wiser? Does he have a valuable... These are all perhaps questions that we should say for the end, I guess. Maybe we should. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I do like the idea, though, that what the fuck is freedom. That's nice. Does he say that? Something like that? He does. I like it. Yeah, to throw forward just a little bit, there's that great scene between Joel and Miles where Joel says, uh, hey, Mr. What the fuck, what about exploring the dark side and all that? Or was that just bullshit? And Miles responds very flatly. That was just bullshit, Joel. <laughs> Miles is so terrific. Curtis Miles Armstrong is, is yeah. really great. I love the film that he is in. Yeah. I love the idea of this Loki figure who just <laughs> messes up his friends' lives because it's entertaining. <laughs> the next morning, Joel's parents are quizzing him about his lackluster SATs. His father asks him about the equalizer balance on the hi-fi he Question mark keeps in his wardrobe. No, I guess that's the I living room because that's where the end yeah, is, right? Yeah. So, yes, it's just in a big bureau of some yes, kind. A credenza, yeah. some a credenza kind. of some sort. Yes. <laughs> and we see, yes, the ominous crystal egg on the mantle. Which I did not read for. I, I thought it was a football trophy. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Eventually we hear more, but it's also a horribly dressed mantle. So then I thought it was an yeah a trophy or an yeah. award for something. It's certainly lit like that with the little glowy plinth yeah. underneath it with the f- switch by the side of the fireplace. I did not put it as artwork. But no, not artwork. Clearly yeah. not artwork. Clearly the symbol egg, of his mother's fertility and femininity. And if you're going to do a Fabergé egg, why do you do a weird glass one? Well, because it was the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> you're so right. <laughs> that is the correct answer. So then we transition into the car. We're still doing the POV work, which I think is is effective. Mm-hmm. We say goodbye to the parents at the airport. We get that great reverse shot of Cruz after being in his POV for, yeah. I don't know, two or three minutes. Mm-hmm. That great reverse shot when he's in the red sweater and yes. he just kind of gives them that half salute as they leave. That's such a good shot. It's cute. Yeah. He is so magnetic on screen already. We have found yeah. him now. Here we are in episode five of The Last Star in Hollywood, and he has shown up. Yep. He returns home to a feast of frozen dinners and... 
Shivas and Coke, so much Shivas, Shivas and, Coke. and Coke really made me laugh. That was a great Woof. gag. It's the so frozen dinner good. gag is weird though. Again, really tonally all over the place. Yeah, this is it, right? Because we follow this with the old time rock and roll scene. Yes, which is yes iconic, yes famous. It has no business being there. This song and it's so is extended. such an odd choice. Yeah. It is 1983. Paul Brickman is 34 years old. 34. So we have to ask, is his taste in music terrible? Or <laughs> are we really doing something with this scene? The Shivas and Coke, the Frozen Dinner, this weird performative dance routine to a song that this boy in 1983 would not like. Yeah. There's no way that he would like it. Upper middle class Chicago, there's no way there's that no he would way. like Bob yeah. Seger. So are we demonstrating to the audience that this kid doesn't know anything? That this kid is so sheltered, that he is so privileged, mm. that he has such little experience of the world, that he is acting out in these incredibly mundane and, and parochial ways. Yeah. That's very interesting. I like that as a read. There's an interesting interpretive lens that we yeah. can apply to this text that makes it so condemnatory of Joel. Mm -hmm. And if that is the case, then you can only argue that Cruz's charm is working against the film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because he is so likable. There's a rumor online that Timothy Hutton was originally cast in this film oh, and chose not smarmier. to do it because he was pursuing something that had a little more credibility to it. But yes, smarmier is exactly yeah. it. That darker aspect of Timothy Hutton we mentioned when we were talking about Taps, that yeah. there's an aspect to his performance that you never know if he's really a good guy, mm -hmm. no matter what his performance mm -hmm. is. Bringing something darker like that might have worked. But this is Cruz in his early 80s. Yeah. Michael J. Fox, everything yes. is charming and cool Very and Michael smooth. J. Fox, yes. It's just unavoidable that you end up siding with him. yeah. So I'm wondering yeah. if there's another tension there. If if Timothy Hutton in the noir version of this film right? <laughs> would give us something much darker. I think darker, I would much really darker. like the noir ver version of this film, actually. Yeah. Because yeah. to me, the tone doesn't work at all. And again, at the end, I'm just like, what did I just watch? Well, let me ask you this question. Mm -hmm. This is a famous comedy. If you consider the comedies of the 1980s, it's this so is wild. one of them. Yeah. Is it? It's not. I mean, it's a comedy, perhaps, funny, according really? to the technical definition. Yeah. But... I laughed at the Shivas gag. That was funny. Yes. I laughed a little bit at him sucking the like popsicle, the meat popsicle, the gravy popsicle from the TV dinner. Yeah. Just because it's a funny visual gag to see Tom Cruise do, but it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. I couldn't laugh at that, that because it was down. too weird. It's too weird. I attribute that to dream logic. I attribute that right? to this is an imaginary thing yeah. that he's doing. Yeah. Oh. So odd. The next morning, the kids are having breakfast in a diner talking enviously about a peer who got into Harvard. These are very motivated young people. They are. Joel asks if they're interested in accomplishing anything or just making money. He says that he wants to serve his fellow mankind. And except for irony, we are not ever going to return to that. Yeah. There's no... He does seem to mean it. He, he does he seem seems to... to mean it, but also be trying to not show his friends that he means it. He it's seems to in that moment, it's right? Layered, yeah. But we don't ever come back to that except in a hollow, ironic echo yeah. of it at the end of the film. How odd. Mm -hmm. Maybe there is an interesting film that could be made about someone opening a brothel out of a 
John Stuart Millsian utilitarian ideal that the, the philosophical thing to do is to maximize good, is to maximize happiness and pleasure? You know, one of my very favorite <laughs> books is called The House of Gentlemen. Right. And it's a book about a brothel full of men that are not allowed to have sex with the women. They just are gentle and affectionate and kind to them and dance with them and pet their hair and tell them they're pretty and lovely. Wounded men come to this place to be healed by femininity. Yeah. Yes, and, really and, the, and the women come to be... Uh, well, to ex to experience that particular kind of, yeah, masculine affection and protection. In a and safe environment. In yeah. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. In a place where their safety is guaranteed. I'll drop a link to that in the show yes, notes. Yes, do. At a meeting of future enterprisers, a name that I do not like and which sits Terrible. very uncomfortably on yes. the tongue, Joel and Barry argue about their project later back at Joel's house. Glenn shows up with his girlfriend asking to borrow a room. As Barry tries to interest Joel in the memo minder, Glenn and his girlfriend are having comedically loud sex upstairs. Yes. In Joel's bedroom, he says, sure, you can use my room. Yeah. Don't you find that weird? There's no way that's a two-bedroom house, first of all. It's a Chicago mansion on the lake. So his parents' room might weird him out a little bit, but certainly there's a guest room. Why do you send somebody upstairs to have sex in your bed? I don't know. I kind of like the idea that this is just, that there are only two bedrooms. That his <laughs> parents have this palatial master suite. Sure. And he has his regular size bedroom tucked away. He doesn't want anyone going into his mom's room for sure, right? You can't have sex in his mom's room. <laughs> that would ruin whatever Freudian nightmare he has oh my God. brewing inside of him. Joel and Barry leave the house, taking against his parents' instruction his father's Porsche. It's interesting that we do not in any way shine a light on the decision to take the Porsche. There's no way. It's clear. The tone of the film, right? Yeah. His dad says, don't take the Porsche. Of course he's going of to. Of course he's going to. We don't have to spend a moment doing it. Yeah. I love the beat of him backing out of the garage, stalling it, and then yes. having to turn it over again, <laughs> which is also structural because this car just doesn't like starting, I guess. We get yes, that later when so. they're being pursued yeah. by Guido. Mm-hmm. So they drive around for a little while. They race a bunch of guys who pull up next to them at yeah. a light. This is really just showing off the Porsche. Then we turn reverse donuts in a parking lot. Do you think that the Porsche is a cool car? I think it's kind of ugly. I don't think it's a very cool car. No. I think a lot of those late 70s, early 80s Porsches, Porsches, yeah. uh, <laughs> they're just a little ugly. I'm bothered by the shape of the headlights. Yeah. I know that the pop-up headlights are very cool and fashionable at the time, but they're a weird shape. Yeah. And an ugly color, too. Like that... Oh, the gray? Yeah. yeah. I want it to be silver, but it's not silver. It's like shark oh, sure. gray. Yeah. And I don't know. It just doesn't work for me. Yeah. Maybe if it was red, I would have thought differently. I don't know. Maybe if it was a Corvette, you would have thought differently. Oh, I definitely would have thought differently <laughs> if it was a Corvette. Yes. The next day, Miles is reading from sleazy classified ads as Joel, a very good boy, is tending to the yard. Yes, he is a very good boy. Where did he find those ads? I need to know. I mean, I is guess that's like just every special, newspaper, is it right? Every newspaper in I the eighties, you could just. Know. I'm curious about this, or if it's one of those like you know, you pay three dollars to even open the bins. Are you suggesting there's a sex paper? Yes, basically. Interesting. I would I would feel better about that than that this is just tucked in between the funnies and you know the movie cinema schedule. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have a lot of experience of American newspapers at all, I let guess, alone yeah. of the 80s. I just always think of them as being wholesome things. I, I can tell you, growing up in Britain, that newsstand tabloids would literally have topless women on page three. That was a oh. phenomenon that was absolutely prevalent when I was growing up. Wow. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah, just well, you then would maybe. open the front page of the newspaper right there. There'd be a little column of like a political story or something that nobody cared about, a little gossip story at the bottom, and just a large like three quarter page picture of a girl without her shirt on. Wow. Okay. Weird, Upsetting right? Like and weird. weird that that was just a part of British culture that just... everyone accepted for the longest time. Wow. The two big offenders for that were The Sun, an absolute tabloid rag, mm-hmm. and The Daily Star, which makes The Sun look like, you know, the New York Times. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> the Sun stopped putting pictures of naked women on the third page of its newspaper in 2015. No. The Star stopped doing it in 2019. Oh, my gosh. Wild. That is wild. Wow. Ew. Well, the good news is now they can just use that page for really top-notch journalism. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure. (laughs) So we spend a lot of time with this back and forth between Joel and Miles before, in order to kickstart the plot, he can clearly sense a Loki-like figure as he is. He Mm -hmm. has an awareness of his medium (laughs) and his own textuality. He clearly senses that the plot needs to start because we've been doing this for 20 minutes without much movement. Oh, yeah. So he calls a sex worker for Joel. He calls Jackie. Mm Mm-hmm. Only for it to be revealed when Jackie shows up later that night that Jackie is not what was expected. Mm-hmm. I don't know what word to use for Jackie because I don't know what Jackie's deal is. Yes, yes. Jackie turns out to be a trans person, which has... Possibly. Po- possibly. Possibly trans. A male appearing figure. Yes. In women's clothing. Yes. And that That's is clearly... The That's the whole joke. Yeah, yeah. Which is an old, tired joke, even in the 80s. Well, except I really like what Brickman does with this. Jackie is great. Jackie is great. Jackie is great. And at no yes. point demeaned by what is happening. No. At no point does this script make fun of Jackie. No, no. And I also think that Joel doesn't really even get icked out. Nope. Just, oh, no, this isn't what I wanted. I didn't want a sex worker, period. Thank you anyway. How can I pay you for your time? Yeah. Yeah. The little negotiation about yes, <laughs> it well, was a I long took a drive long and it's my time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly, and yeah, and Joel doesn't argue with that at all. He just pays up and is a, is a very good boy. He's, He's a good boy. He is a good yeah. boy, and Jackie is great. Yeah. Jackie, while leaving though, passes Joel the number for Lana. Yes, with the great line that. She's what you really want. She's what all you white boys who live by the lake really want. So I just thought that was funny. In the aftermath of Jackie, and that is how Joel thinks of the rest of his life from this night on, it's all in the aftermath Mm -hmm. of Jackie. He is frustrated in the dubious comfort of his twin bed. He tries to masturbate. He's dreaming about some woman, some some girl, a babysitter. I guess guess. his babysitter, probably back to the egg thing. I don't know. His babysitter? His babysitter. Yeah. Yeah, earlier when he's telling the story to his friends uh, at the poker game, he's telling the story of this girl, Kessler, was that yeah, the last name, yeah. was babysitting, and then he went to go visit her, and oh, that's why she was yeah, giving the kid okay. a bath, and that's how she got her clothes wet, because she started the shower wax. It's, it's a convoluted story. But anyway, the point was the babysitter. So it could just be a girl he goes to school with who is a babysitter. It is worth noting that they refer to all of the girls that they go to school with exclusively by their last names. That's odd, right? Which is a nice little flourish in the yeah. script. That's just a nice little bit of, of character seeping mm-hmm, in there. I mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I like that. But I was just saying that, yeah, it could be that it's his babysitter that he was thinking of, which is, I feel like, a pretty normal male fantasy, right? You never had a babysitter, so you wouldn't know, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. My mother was actively neglectful, so I never had a babysitter oh, growing up. <laughs> it's a sad story, but I said it in a fun way. <laughs> it's the key to comedy. 
Oh, no. This fantasy, as we mentioned earlier, is interrupted mm. by Everyone. numerous yes. armed police officers, his parents, her father. Yeah. It's kind of cute. But it is kind of cute. Yeah, and he's very frustrated by he it. He then just gives mm. up. Yes, frustrated. He goes through the classified ads, which are genuinely, I think, very funny. They're genuinely very funny <laughs> and well-written. I think that is some prop master's greatest day Magnum ever Opus, at yes. work. <laughs> was just writing all of those. But they are representative of a darker, edgier, kind of nastier film, like a film that's really got claws, Mm -hmm. which this film absolutely does not. There's nothing edgy here happening at all. Which is why he marks them all out with Sharpie. (laughs) Not (laughs) enough to just move on. You got to scribble over it. He then finally calls Lana, who turns out to have the voice of Rebecca de Mornay. Fantastic. Exciting. She agrees to see him later that night, and Joel waits. Oh my God! And he's wearing the dumb clean. catcher's mask when he's talking to her on the phone. <laughs> that was a bit of comic genius, actually. I that really like did that make too. me laugh. I'm going to say the whole first act of this film, which is about to end, mm-hmm. I think really works. Yeah, it yeah. absolutely makes promises that it has no intention of delivering yep. on. But I really like the tonality of where we are. Yeah, and it's only when we don't go in any of the expected directions that this film kind of becomes a little unwieldy. And a yes. little a little soft in its focus. Yes, definitely. So we cut outside and the wind is rising. The night is dark. Symbolism. Joel <laughs> wakes from where he has fallen asleep on the couch and finds that Lana has let herself in. She is gorgeous. She asks if he's ready. He immediately undresses her. Just immediately. Just As goes right to it. Yeah. Wind, just starts kissing the doors, neck. Just like, like he's done this every day. Like he's Fabio. Yeah. It's kind of weird. Absolutely possible it's, to interpret this as a dream. I... Yeah. Almost unavoidable it's to not. <laughs> almost unavoidable. Yeah. We have the sex on the stairs. They have yes. the actual childhood pictures of Tom Cruise. They have sex in the office while the American the flag chair. flutters on TV on behind TV. them to indicate the end of programming. It's yes. that late. And also his manhood, I guess. But or also something. America, goddammit. Yeah. yeah. I just, wow. Odd. Well, let's talk a little bit about the America of it all. Let's talk a little yeah. bit about 1983. Let's talk a little bit about Reaganomics. Mm. This is a very, it's a very Reagan era film, right? We talked a little about this in previous films because, of course, all of that energy, all of that, you know, it's morning in America energy is suffused through all popular culture mm. at this time. Obviously, Risky Business is doing something different with it with the outright economic inflection, right? Sure, yeah. We talked last week about the most successful element of losing it being Wendell, being the, the nasty oh, little capitalist. The capitalist guy, right? yeah, sure. What do we make of Joel here? What do we make of this comfortable, privileged, upper middle class suburbanite? It sure does feel like something from another time, which it is. But, but one of the things I was thinking as we walked through this house is like, does this class of person exist anymore? I'm sure that they do, but I feel like I see such a larger stratification between the wealthiest and the poorest and that you just don't have all of those. No, I mean, the middle class is dying. This is an observable phenomenon. Okay, okay. Wealth is being sequestered away in the very top end of the economic spectrum. This is not my strong suit, uh, economics or American politics before the past 10 years are not my strong suit. So I know you're not from here. When you say Reaganomics, I don't know exactly what you mean. Reaganomics is essentially the idea of a merciless free market, a basically Mm. unregulated capitalist free market, coupled with the notion, the lie, the myth of trickle-down economics, right? Yeah. The idea that 
it's great for the rich to get richer because when the rich get richer, everyone below them gets richer too. Which is such an odd, I don't know how they sold that. Yeah. It's very much the latter half of the 20th century. And and again, I should Mm -hmm. asterisk all of this by saying, I'm not from here. (laughs) This is a layman's interpretation. I'm also not an economist. I'm not trained in economics at all. But my understanding is that this is very much the 1980s pivot on the 50s notion of the American dream, right? Mm. The idea that anyone can make it. Now the idea is, well, the rich can make it, but that will benefit all of us. Mm. And it will lead to an increase in the middle class, which honestly, for a while, it did. But then it stopped being that. It stopped working that as businesses are consolidated and as money is sequestered. So I guess to sidestep the economics and get to the, the, the narrative of it all, does this framework, does this context make it harder for you to connect to Joel, easier for you to connect to Joel? Should it change yeah. our connection to Joel? Do you think that the script wants it to change our connection to Joel? I, Are we supposed to look at him like he's a shitty little capitalist, like he's just another Wendell, he's just exploitative, he's only preoccupied with making money? Are we supposed to take his earlier disavowal of the importance of wealth in his life to be true, to be real. Yeah, like he does feel a little bit like a turncoat, right? Like he starts by saying he just wants to, you know, make it into a good college and not mess up his future. And uh, But he doesn't just want to make money. He really does want to make something, you know, to... Mm-hmm. to does he say something about change the world? Or does he doesn't he, say change the world. He says serve his fellow serve mankind. Serve his fellow mankind. Yeah. And I, yeah, and we talked about how, like, maybe he was teasing a little bit, but he did seem also to mean it and i think what we get once he goes into business as it were is a sullying of that aw shucks good kid breaking the backyard that we had before well except that those two things i think in this period are not opposed they are not mutually exclusive you think of, you know, we've mentioned already Michael J. Fox, who who made a career in this period by playing guys like this, right? Yeah. It's the oft-cited criticism of Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. The only flaw that is often cited in Back to the Future is that the end of the film is just, here's a shiny new truck. Here's the shiny new truck you always wanted. That you always wanted, yeah. You have yeah. traveled in time and your reward is capitalist increase. Mm. He plays Alex P. Keaton, a noted early example of that young Republican capitalism huh. on sitcom television. That's so this is absolutely an archetype that we are playing with. It is an archetype that is usually presented in a lighthearted or comedic fashion. But it is something that we broadly as a culture are pretty comfortable with in 83. That is the end of the first act. And I want to note Brickman's incredible structural acuity. The end of the first act falls exactly where it should. It is exactly the kind of change in circumstances mm. that the end of the first act should carry with it. He also nails the midpoint later. It's good stuff. Does he nail the midpoint? He it feels like the midpoint, the midpoint is a good 10 minutes late. No, we'll get to it. It's, it's almost exactly to the minute where it should be. Really? Yeah. Okay. The next morning, Lana demands $300 for the night. Mm-hmm. Would you like to guess what $300 in 1983 is worth today? Uh, well, I checked for the 125 that his parents left him, and that was $380. <laughs> so I'm going to guess around Seven math, something? math is math? happening. No, it's one thousand and fifteen dollars. One thousand. One thousand and fifteen. Wow, my math is good. Holy smokes! Lana is getting paid. She, okay, well she should. She's very good at her job and lovely. Apparently so. Yeah. 
Joel goes to the bank and cashes a $500 bond given to him by his grandparents, which is accompanied by a card that reads, quote, may your life be filled with happiness and joy. <laughs> Returning home, he finds that Lana has gone and she has taken the crystal egg with her. See, the symbol of his mom uh -huh. has been removed from his house mm. by the interposition of another woman in his affections. Ah, yes, yes, <laughs> sure. I'm only 40 to 50% serious about this read of the film, but it's that there. 40 to 50% is compelling. Yep, no, you can, yeah, yeah, you can back that thesis, I'd say. Joel talks Miles into helping him. They stake out the fancy hotel, the Drake Hotel in Chicago, yes. a very famous institution. And Lana arrives in the company of an older man. They leave, but Lana catches up to them on the sidewalk. They talk in the car. Lana asks for a ride. Moments later, they are threatened by Guido, Lana's gun-toting manager, quote unquote. Yes. He gives chase, and it is absolutely the lowest stakes, most poorly paced, most sleepy time car chase yes. I have ever seen. Yeah, yeah, you're completely right. Let's talk about pacing in this film. Pacing in this film is fucked, right? Isn't it just <laughs> terrible? Well, not to put too fine a point on it. Yes. <laughs> it's really poor. Yeah. There's no sense of the flow of time. His no. parents are gone for a, a week. It seems like a long weekend to me. Rebecca DeMornay says your parents come back Sunday, right? Yeah, but he's so, in like school maybe most Thursday, days. Thursday, Friday. Or should be in school most when, days. Okay, yeah. yeah, I don't I'd know. I'd say maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe five days, maybe a full week. Yeah. I'm not sure. But that's the thing is it's impossible to keep track Who of. Who knows? It feels like every time we reset to a new scene, it's the next morning. Yeah, and then we always just like fade to black and yeah. then we're in a new spot and we can't really tell. Yeah, yeah. So the pacing is just all over the place, which isn't really a problem, except when you need pacing for excitement, like in a car like chase. Like a car chase. Yeah. This With is a Porsche. Pretty poor. The scene doesn't seem to end. It seems like he's just, we do outrun him. And then Cruz gets the take almost to camera where he says, Porsche, accept no substitutes or yes. whatever it is, right? Is that it? Is that yes. an, the actual slogan? Yes. Is this just product placement just in the grossest no, way? No, I don't think it's product placement. I it's do more of a think, wink wink. I think it is a joke. Uh. I don't know. I would completely buy as well that this was improvised. I would completely buy that this was just Tom sure. Cruise doing that to camera. And Curtis Armstrong just leans in and says, hey, fuck you. <laughs> Which is very funny. I think the timing there is excellent. It's cute. Yeah. But yeah, then they just all laugh and it fades to black. And yeah. you're like, all right. <laughs> because we've, we've outrun the armed pimp who is in hot pursuit of them. It's fine that we should just yeah. have a laugh line and fade to black. Oh, so odd. I feel like I've said that. 18 times. So odd. <laughs> I'll cut but half it of is. them out. Yes. Thanks. <laughs> Back at the house. Hey, the following morning, Joel talks with his parents on the phone while Lana, wearing a Princeton sweater, symbolism. So cute. Pours though. his orange juice, you know, the way a mom would. Oh, yeah. Makes him breakfast. This yeah. is another reason I thought it was a fantasy. I was like, sure, in your fantasy, your perfect dream girl wears a Princeton sweatshirt with no panties and makes you breakfast. Yeah. Obviously. The no panties, I think, is implied in it's this implied. scene, right? Yes. <laughs> they talk about Guido, and then it is time for Joel to go to school. Lana, though, <laughs> doesn't want to leave. He finally, graciously, allows her to stay, threatening her that he'll go to the police if anything else is stolen. And she gets maybe line of the movie for me personally. Joel, go to school. Go learn something. <laughs> yes, mom. <laughs> yeah, I think her delivery there is great. Mm-hmm. That's fair. So then we do this split montage of Joel at school and Lana at the house. When Joel gets home, he finds that Lana has brought home 
her friend, another sure. sex worker, Vicky, who has already had sex with Glenn because the passage of time is soft like taffy yes. in this movie. Who even knows? Why wasn't Glenn at school? I don't know. She gives Joel $50, but he demands that they leave. And they do. But then there's an immediate showdown with she Guido. She gives Joel $50. We should say this. Because, because he is now her pimp. Yes. That she is says, what just oh, 50% the goes gets, to the house. Yes. Which, first of all, 50% is so goddamn much. Ew. It's possible that prostitution is not an economically equitable arrangement. Mm, you hmm. don't say. That That is an unfortunate scene for me because Vicky is the one who, who says, oh, yeah, 50% goes to the house. And she's not, like, savvy in the way that Lana is savvy. Yeah, Vicky is a bit of a misfire. Yeah. Vicky, the comedic prostitute, I is guess? not, I think, what this film needs right now. No. I would agree. We don't need to go broader in our treatment of sex workers, particularly not after we've done such a good job with Jackie and with yes. Lana. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So Joel demands that they leave, mm-hmm. and they do. And he says, I am not the house. We so. cut to him on his bed with his weights. Yeah. He has changed clothes. He has changed clothes. Did you notice what he was wearing? I sure did. He's back in those cut-off jorts again. Tiny little jorts Tiny with little flips jorts. up the sides. <laughs> He stole those so tiny. from the set of Endless oh, Love. No, no, I can no. only These believe. Have a clear four inches. <laughs> <laughs> Weird fashion choice, though. Weird. Working yes. out in denim, too, cannot yeah, be an no, enjoyable experience uh-uh. at Absolutely all. Absolutely not. We then see he hears voices, and we look out to see the women and Guido on the lawn. In the same place and again, we just left them. How much time has passed? It was yeah. definitely enough time for him to change and change start his workout. And start a workout, yeah. So they went outside. Obeying just the letter of the law, went outside and just stayed on the and lawn. And just stood on the lawn? Yeah. Did they call Guido to this pick him up? is the proof that it is all a setup. Oh, For me personally. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. When he asks her at the end of the film, was this real or was it all a setup? Was this entire thing planned? Did you plan from the jump to take me for all I've got? Mm-hmm. And she says, no, but you don't believe me. Yeah. I think it was a setup. Maybe so. That makes more sense. It makes sense of so much in this story. It, it does. It does. It helps it along. I like that take. And it's a much darker story. Yes. It's, it's evidently... Which again, I feel like it should be. Yeah. It oftentimes yeah. feels like a darker story. It is. Yeah. It's the story of a very naive boy, which ties back to the Bob Seger, ties back to the frozen dinner, ties yes. back, you know, the shivas and the coke and the, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's the story of a very naive and sheltered young man who is ruthlessly exploited economically, physically, mm. sexually, by this this cabal, right? By Lana and Guido and Vicky. Interesting. I don't I don't love the idea of a film that depicts the super privileged wealthy kid heading to Princeton, it turns out, spoilers, as the one being exploited by sex workers. That seems odd to me. It's just tonally all over the place. Because she says what? Uh, I think we should introduce your friends to my friends and we can both make a whole lot of money. Yeah. Uh, Which he pretty much right away agrees to, right? I don't remember them. No, he refuses and then has to after the car ends up in the lake. After she accidentally, accidentally knocks the gear shift. Oh, yeah. There's definitely a way of reading it that that was on purpose. Definitely that that was on purpose. It does require the camera to be perhaps a little unreliable. Mm-hmm. Which it is. As, we as already a know that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. In any case, Joel comes out to confront Guido. The women run back inside. And this confrontation with Guido right here, this is the midpoint. 
It's the exact reversal oh. of fortunes. We have now locked our antagonist. It's it's all right there. And it is That's exactly... That's the midpoint. That's why I misread the midpoint. I read the midpoint as her saying, we should go into business together. No, that is closer to the transition into the third act. Yeah. But by that point, we're really starting to lose track of our action points yes. in terms of the script. Yeah. Okay. When he commits to it, when he actually begins the process of starting this... What I guess is just a party, right? It's not supposed to be an ongoing arrangement. It's just a one night thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a one night brothel. Yes. It's it's a pop up brothel. Pop up brothel. <laughs> yes, yeah, like a taco truck. Yeah. <laughs> the taco truck would be a good name for a pop up brothel. It sure would. <laughs> that is the dirtiest joke I've ever told on a podcast. I'm I sure of it. Love it. Later that evening, Lana comes to talk with Joel while he is studying. She asks if he ever gets high and if he wants to go get ice cream. Another fantasy. Girlfriend and mom. Do you want to go get ice right cream? There. Yeah. What? Yeah, ice cream sounds good. Okay, mom. <laughs> <laughs> he closes up the textbook and goes with them, of course, because who doesn't care about his future when presented with the prospect of immediate gratification? <laughs> We walk by the water, and this is the scene where Lana outlines her plan. Mm-hmm. Hey, I've got friends who like to have sex for money. You've got friends with money. Yep. Maybe we could put these hands together for an advantageous arrangement. Mm-hmm. She really does come with this full-formed, it yeah. seems. While dodging his questions, too, about her private life, he's trying to connect with her as boyfriend and girlfriend. Yeah, and she's not this having it. doesn't work. No. We have determined the limit of Rebecca de Mornay's acting ability, and it is subtext. Yes. <laughs> We just can't get to it, which is one of the things that oddly makes it more ambiguous about whether or not this is in fact a setup because her behavior here is so weird. It is weird. It is weird. I don't like the bit about her leaving home because her stepfather kept coming on her. Like that's another darker, different movie that we're not in. But it's also impossible to tell if that's true. She throws it out in such a weird way Mm -hmm. and then we don't inspect it at all narratively, right? No. And she gets mad at him then. What does she say? Don't judge me while you sit here leaning on your dad's $40,000 car. Yeah. Although he doesn't seem to me to be being judgmental in that scene, does he? he? This is the problem. It's yeah. It's so weird. I'm not getting any of that. I'm here. not getting it. Yeah. doesn't work. And then we talked last week about Cruz's first car-based stunt in his career. Yes. Now we get the full thing. Now we get the real deal. That's this great. This is Tom Cruise action guy. Is this him then? He doesn't have a stunt guy? He does this one? No, I mean, there's long takes of it, obviously. Like, there may it be certain sure shots be. where he's interposed with a, with a stunt I was bubble. wondering about the one where the car physically falls into the water and he falls into the water with it holding on yes, to the car. Yes, I wonder about that, that too. is stunt double territory yeah. for certain. And it's unlikely that he would have got insurance clearance. Unlikely. To, <laughs> I think so too. At this stage I of am his curious career. though. Yeah. yeah. The physicality of trying to stop yes. the car, the desperation that comes with it, that that Tom Cruise ability to barely, barely be in control of something. Uh-huh. I mean, that's his whole career from this point on. Yeah. That's yeah, every that's Ethan Hunt performance. That's every, you know, this is this is kind of the thing. So it's interesting to see in a movie before we even have his cool, before we yeah. even get Tom Cruise movie star, we get Tom Cruise action stunt guy. Yeah, that's true. Though we should note, as we were talking about pacing, this is another scene that just ends. Yeah. The jetty collapses, the car falls in, Cruz falls in, yep. his friends run up, shout for him, yep. and we just fade to black. Yeah. No control over the rigidity of the pacing here. 
The car is fished out of the lake. Joel returns to school where he confronts the school nurse and demand that his recent absences be excused. Otherwise, it will wreck his GPA. Yeah. But he becomes so insistent that he is instead suspended from school for five days. Which he should be. He grabs her by the lapels. That was not yes, cool. Yes, not cool at all. Uncool. And he is also kicked out of Young Moneymakers Club. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Monopoly Guy Club. Monopoly Guy Club. <laughs> <laughs> The exact movement of this plot doesn't completely work for me. The pacing really is a problem now. But the overall shape of it, I think, is convincing. Beginning with him closing his textbooks and going to get high and have ice cream. We didn't even mention the very charming scene that he has with Bronson Pinchot as they are discussing whether or not he is high. Oh, He's, yeah. I am so high. Mm -hmm. <laughs> really good, like, warming character-based stuff. Yeah. There. yeah. But making this choice to abandon his future for immediate gratification, yeah. then the whole scene with Lana where he's pushing this thing that he should not want and cannot have, the car, of course, being the consequence of this, and then his behavior with the nurse. This all reaches a peak when he comes out from the building. It's night again, by the way. Yes. Another whole day has passed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He takes Glenn's bike and rides off into the night. He goes to, well, he pauses to scream at a train as you need to do sometimes in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. And then he winds up at Lana's apartment downtown. How does he know where she lives? This is not answered. This is not nope. clear. It's also really weird that when he goes in and he's exhausted and he's giving this very like physical performance of someone who is fatigued and is just worn down, he goes in and she gives him the most maternal hug I think yep. I've ever seen on film. Yep. She seems in that moment 15 years old. I was ready for an eye roll her. from her. Yeah. Yeah. But we didn't get one. I guess it was supposed to be a sweet, touching moment. And that's it. He is at his lowest ebb. He has no choice but to follow Lana's plan. Mm -hmm. And this is where we transition into the third act. We cut ahead to the setting up of this new business endeavor. The women arrive at the house. This is where we get the line. Some of these girls are wearing my mother's clothing. I just don't want to spend the rest of my life in analysis. Yep. So he's self-aware enough to know yep. that it's happening already. And, and yeah, tells her to talk to them, please. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We should say, too, this is when we get the iconic outfit. This is when we get the blazer, yes. the black T-shirt, and the Ray-Bans. like he a switch looks has been flipped. So cool. So cool. And that blazer is like the thrifting find of my dreams. It's awesome. I do not rate 80s fashion. That is a great blazer. Blazers are maybe the only good thing that survives from 80s fashion today? Men's blazers, the women's blazers were terrible. We oh, had those crazy true. shoulder pads, remember? Yeah, and the yeah. weird nipped in waist with the giant buttons and like the sure. double breasted. Oh, they were awful. But the men's ones and like the skinny ties, that's sure. a cool look. That's still the cool look. Especially that now for good. like yeah. women wearing menswear. Like that's, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Wood wear. That's awesome. This is no kidding, the first opportunity that I have had to ask you this question here on the podcast. <laughs> is Tom Cruise hot? No. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Interesting, right? We'll talk about this. I don't want to spoil the story. When we get to legend, I have a story about Tom Cruise. Um, but I don't think that he is hot. He's very cute and he's attractive. Uh, dreamy even, mm. but I don't think hot. Not, not to my eye anyway. But this, you're right, this moment of, of transformation into the epitome of cool. Yeah. This is undeniable. This is what gets totally. the world's attention. Yeah, I yeah. think so. I, he pulls it off. He really does. Especially since it's such a contrast to that Augie Shucks kid that he had yeah. in so many other performances and even earlier in this film. Yeah. We were talking earlier about how, like, at this time period, like, being a capitalist being in future enterprisers or whatever was like considered cool or virtuous or all American or something, something 
Is the same still true of smoking? Oh, is absolutely. This, okay, yeah. I wasn't yeah, sure if yeah, the smoking yeah. was supposed to show that he's like descending into a den of iniquity or that he is cool. No, we are smoking all the way through. You know, we open with the boys playing cards and drinking beer and smoking cigars. Yeah, like we're, yeah, yeah, you're right. That we is still, you know, Teenage Rebellion okay. in 1983. It'll be interesting to track, actually. What is the last Tom Cruise film in which smoking occurs? And when it's cool, because yeah. now, yeah, smoking is for bad guys. So from here on... Wow, the plot just accelerates. Things just spin out of control. Mm -hmm. The house is full and the party is swinging, but Joel has forgotten that the Princeton recruiter is coming tonight for his interview because who doesn't interview kids at 9 p.m. on a Saturday night? So I guess. silly. They shoo Barry out of the little office where he is working as the, you know, mafia accountant for right. this particular yeah. enterprise. Again, very cute performance. Yep, he's darling. The recruiter is unimpressed with Joel's resume. Anyways, looks like the University of Illinois... With the weirdest take I've ever seen. Such a weird take. Yeah. Later, Joel and Lana talk about how things are going, but when his parents call, Lana gets wildly horny for trains. Also, Suddenly. let's go make love on a real train, she says. <laughs> because, and then they get on the shitty L? Because he's playing with a train set, which, as we all know, is an unsinkable aphrodisiac. I, if it's... only when the boys had gone down to Tijuana and losing it, they had <sighs> bought a train set, they would be fighting the girls off with a stick. The train it, is it so really dirty is. and nasty. It's the least sexy train I have ever seen. But at least we're spending five minutes waiting for people who keep giving them judgmental looks to get off, to the, get train. off the train. And then the houseless person, yes. he shuffles off onto the platform, covers in his coat, and then goes back on and immediately starts making out with Rebecca yes. Marnie as hard as anyone has ever made out with anyone. It's a bizarre sequence that I wanted to like because I was like, oh, sex on a train. This could be fun. Nope, not fun. Grimy and gross and weird. And also... If you're you know, kind of into like sex in public and voyeurism mm -hmm. and whatever, and you want somebody to look like, okay, that's interesting. But then they get everybody off yes, of the train. Exactly so it's right. like, what are this you doing? The public performance of the yes. sexual act. Yeah. This is about, I'm just really horny for trains. It's so strange. I just, this does not work for me at all. But at least. And there's a bad needle drop, right? Yeah, it's Phil Collins. <laughs> yeah, it's Phil Collins. <laughs> but... Okay, but I usually like Phil Collins. Well, that's a position that a person can have. <laughs> Listeners, it's just you and me right now because Elizabeth's on a timeout for having a crazy opinion. <laughs> She's shaking her head <laughs> at me right now. You're going to find out in the comments. <laughs> you just I wait. I know, I know, I know. And I know that there's a whole internet thing about hating Phil Collins, right? I know that hating I Phil Collins know that. is a hacky ass opinion. You are the I only person that. that I have known that hates Phil Collins. He really is just the worst. <laughs> And this song personally, sucks. or like as a musician, I know nothing about him personally. Oh, I'm judging see, the man entirely disagree. on the output of his art. No, his music rocks. There's not. A I give you, you the Tarzan what? soundtrack. I gladly, gladly. <laughs> it's good. I would love to enter into evidence the Tarzan soundtrack. <laughs> An absolute like inarguable low point for Disney soundtracks. In the entire Doesn't history he... of Walt Disney oh, Animation. Oh, no. Doesn't Phil Collins get the excellent needle drop for uh, Say Anything, where John Cusack holds this boombox over his head? No, you're, and... you're adjacent. That's Peter Gabriel. That's oh. the other singer of Genesis. That oh. was the first singer from Genesis. I will say this. Okay, okay. I don't think that Phil Collins is terrible in Genesis. I think Genesis is a fine band. All right. I think his solo stuff. Look, I know I'm going to catch flack okay. for this. I know I'm the you only know? person in the world, apparently, who who has this very correct and judicious opinion. <laughs> and I know that this is not usually my thing on podcasts. It's true. But goddamn. <laughs> you are not a hater. It's true. You I'm are not. You are not, not a hater. Thing. It is not your thing. <laughs> I'm it a is... lover, not a fighter. <laughs> it's 
so true. <laughs> I just hate to see you miss out on joy. Me too. <laughs> Our wedding playlist is going to be a battlefield, isn't it? <laughs> just the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. I don't know. <laughs> The next day, another fresh start, new day, Joel goes to pick up the car, but when he returns home, he finds the house empty. empty. It has been denuded of all of its furniture. The entire house, yes. He calls Lana, but Guido picks up, admitting that he was the one who stole all the furniture because of course he was. What are you doing? Yeah. His parents have landed, but Joel isn't there to pick him up. He is instead buying everything back from Guido in a flat comedic scene Yeah. that does not feel like it belongs at the end of the string of events that we just watched. And it turns out it doesn't. This is the the new false ending, right? All of this? I don't know how far we go, actually. I'm not entirely either. sure where the break point is. I know, I believe that it's seven minutes, but I don't know exactly where that lines up yeah. with the existing cut of the film. I'm very curious to find out. Yeah. And he almost forgets the damn egg. Yeah. So then we just go through the motions, right? Yes. It's, it's buying all the stuff back. He spends his last $40 on the egg, except that the egg is $340. So Guido has to float him $300 because he's good for it. A yeah, weird callback to the amount of $300. Owes. This is just like a final twist of the knife about no idea. sleeping with Lana that first yes. night. I don't know. Anyway, he gets the entire house dressed. He gets it yeah. completely set dressed again. So In a couple of hours, I guess. If his Princeton parents are doesn't at work out, the... professional set dressing. <laughs> yes, really exactly. Good. Or go work for HGTV. One of those two things is <laughs> He can be happen. one of those college hunks hauling junk. Exactly right. <laughs> his parents come back. They are completely bamboozled by this chicanery that has occurred uh, except that there is a small crack in the egg in the egg yes inside the symbol of his mother's fertility and mm. maternity mm. has been flawed now because another woman has taken her place even temporarily mm. even for a moment this mm. is like evangelical virginity conversations right this is like <laughs> that kind of thing once yes. your purity has been sullied, it is sullied forever. That is a crack that will never go away. Uh, and then his dad's like, well, I'll just throw it out. <laughs> He's been past the mother's egg for a while now. I the guess. masculine feminine dynamic with regard to like the sexual exploits of their children, right? Right. The weird... <laughs> out in the yard, Joel's dad comes out to tell him that he has been accepted into Princeton because your actions do not have any consequences. Exactly. Not a single goddamn one. We're not even engaging with the fact that he has been suspended from school. Yes. And has been kicked out of the one extracurricular that was really impressive to the recruiter. Okay. Sure. Well, it's about to get wilder because Joel and Lana have dinner together in a restaurant downtown. He asks her if their night together was a setup, if the whole thing had been orchestrated from the start. She says no, but she means yes. <laughs> this is intercut with scenes of the Young Moneymakers Club and later... Joel and Lana walk through the park and he teases her about paying for the pleasure of his company. The end. That's the it. The end. That's the note that we're closing this so film out on. So now they're boyfriend and girlfriend, I, I guess. I can absolutely see why Brickman hated it. I can see why, given the first two thirds, given the first 80% yeah. of this film, why this ending would break your heart. It is absolutely unforgivable. Yeah, yeah. So flimsy and phony, you said, uh, yeah. critic said. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's a fundamental betrayal of everything that the film has established. Everything you said. And set it up. rewards all the worst impulses yes. of this character. Yes. In a very 80s, I guess, Reaganomics sort of way. Look at me learning things. Kind of. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it's taking Miles's say what the fuck philosophy from the beginning of the film mm -hmm. and treating it like that is 
the actual real, thesis like it is and an not the bullshit philosophy. that he said that it was. But that's the problem is we've already disclaimed it right in the middle of the film. So no one learns anything. Yeah. Everyone is rewarded for terrible behavior. Mm -hmm. And now this preppy little kid who's going to go off to Princeton, I guess, is in a full relationship with a sex worker who was five years older than him. Neat. Everyone's feeling good about this. But it's a cultural phenomenon and everybody loves That's the movie. the point, right? Is that none of, because nobody, when they talk about risky business, says, oh, but that ending, what a kicker. It's wild. I love the ending yeah. of that film. Doesn't matter. That's not what the cultural legacy of this film is. It's Tom Cruise being incredibly cool, incredibly sharp, really delivering his dialogue, like really being present on screen, which I'm aware now sounds like the faintest of phrase. He says words at his own screen. <laughs> He could be captured by traditional filmmaking instruments. Man can wear a blazer. <laughs> but that's the thing. He wears a blazer maybe better than anyone has worn a blazer. Yeah. Like he okay. really becomes an icon. It's the sock slide and the it's sock slide that and look that whole in the third act. Yeah. The the whole dancing sequence is actually very good. The kids got moves. And if you're not paying attention to the text of the film, if you're just watching this as a casual bit of entertainment, or if you're watching this because, ha, that Tom Cruise kid, he's really yeah. cool, then you're gonna get what you want from this film. Yes. I would be so curious to hear from listeners what they think about this movie, especially if they saw it way back when and remember like its moment in time yeah. and what that felt yeah. like, because I, I'm really having trouble wrapping my brain around it. I'm wondering if it's still got rewatch value for people too, or if things have just changed too much and movie making has changed too much. I feel like 80s movies in particular were so different in tone from the way that we tell stories now, so much more kind of all over the place, like like changing the tone within the movie? I think that's really difficult to say with absolute certainty. Like it is. The machinery I think is that's why I started as, with I feel. Yes. <laughs> the machinery is not as well-oiled as it is now. Now, movie making is essentially a safe business. It is very, very difficult for a movie to fail these days huh. because – the business itself has become so conservative and so preoccupied with safe, established, mapped patterns. Right, yeah. I called up the box office list for the opening weekend of Risky Business. This mm -hmm. is the weekend of August 5th to 7th, 1983. Just to look at what was playing and what, you know, the kind of things that you could see in the multiplex when you went to see Risky Business. Number one is National Lampoon's Vacation. Number two is Return of the Jedi. Okay. Risky Business opens at three. Jaws 3D, Staying Alive, which is the sequel to uh, Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> uh, Crawl, Trading Places, and then some films that I don't know so well. Private School, The Star Chamber, Class. War Games is down there at the bottom. Look at this. Wow. Number number 11 is War Games. Number 12 is Flashdance. Number 13 is Octopussy. And number 14, very casually, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> That's so weird. Is apparently playing. <laughs> the 1983 re-release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So I guess the question now, as we transition to our discussion of where this should go on the big list. Yeah is more about legacy, right? It's more about influence. It's more about how this film lives in the memory rather than the experience of watching it by itself. When you think back on Risky Business three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, hmm. are you going to remember this frustrating descent into lunacy at the end of the film? Are you going to remember the pacing issues? Or are you going to remember the sock slide, Bob Seger? Are you going to remember Phil Collins? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. I don't think this one is going to have a lot of staying power for me. Besides the Bomb Seeger, like that's a really great sequence. I really mm -hmm. did think it was a lot of fun. But the rest of it felt pretty floppy. And I think I will also remember 
the crazy French doors blowing open and the and the leads coming sure. in and naked Rebecca De Mornay because it was stunning. Like yeah. that was that was a vibe, but in a very different kind of film, but right? So <laughs> in a Franco Zeffirelli yeah. film, that or, scene makes a lot of sense. In a dream, yes. <laughs> I just don't know. Um, yeah, I don't think that this one is going to have the same kind of staying power for me. I think this one might be a product of its time. And yet, it's going to go pretty high on the list, right? It has to because it is uh, that, iconic, yeah, because yeah. it's influential. It's more fun than Taps was, for sure. It's more fun than The Outsiders, but not as iconic as The Outsiders. I would disagree. I think not as iconic to you. But this is literally, yeah, it's yeah, no, this you're right. And it's it Top is. Gun it and is. it's Mission Impossible. No. Like, that is Cruz's career. Yeah, really. yeah. I guess I meant not as classic as The Outsiders. Yeah, that's a sure, good point. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, this will be a tricky one, I think, for me. Do you have a, a good sense of where you want to put it? Well, I think that's it, right? It's either just above The Outsiders or just below The Outsiders. Yeah. I think it has to be I, one I of those too. two locations. Is it a better film? Yeah, in many ways, I think it's a better film than The Outsiders. It doesn't. Are, are we talking? Make we're me talking happy. theatrical release too, aren't we? We're particularly talking theatrical yeah. release. Yeah. Mm. Both of those films have trouble holding together. It's all about your criteria here, I suppose. Mm. This is, I think, technically a better film than The Outsiders. Yeah. I think that the performances are extremely strong throughout. Rebecca De Mornay, perhaps accepted. Everyone else, knockout performances, yeah. wall to wall. Mm-hmm. Can't quite say the same thing about The Outsiders. I think the dialogue here is, when it is good, very, very good. Yeah. I think there are real high points here. And you can't argue with its iconic power. It's true. It's true. I, I just feel that like... said, mm-hmm. The Outsiders is special. Right? In a way that Risky Business is not special. I completely agree. I just think I cannot look at myself in the mirror and my fellow film students in the eye if I put Risky Business above The Outsiders. I just think I can't do it. I mean, something's going to go above The Outsiders. Some, oh, yes. <laughs> the Outsiders Definitely. is not going to be top okay. of this and list. And that's all right. Yes. But it yeah. can't be. I think it can't be Risky Business. I, I'm comfortable putting Risky Business just under The Outsiders. I think so, too. I think so, too. Yeah. I think that it's a distance ahead of TAPS. Yes, I think, yeah, and I, think I that's, agree. That's a, and of course, it's thousands of miles ahead of Endless Love and Losing It yes. <laughs> down there at the bottom of the list. <laughs> Losing It, I'm pretty confident, will still be there. Yeah, I the think it probably process. will still be yeah. there at the end. It's so too bad about Endless Love because the first act was really lovely and special. Which is, I think, something you can also yeah. say about Risky Business to a certain extent. I, yeah, yeah, they, they remind me a little special. bit yeah. Yeah. of each other in that particular sure. way. Yeah. Well, that is it. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for making it through this movie with us. Please do seriously get in touch and let us know what you thought of Risky Business. Have you seen the alternate cut? If you want to hear our thoughts on that original ending as written and directed by Paul Brickman, then please head over to our Patreon page. It will be available there for free. Anyone can go get it. Patreon.com slash LastStarPod. You can also connect with us on all the socials. We are Last Star Pod, basically anywhere you want to be. Yeah. If you go somewhere and you look for Last Star Pod and we are not there, let us know. I'll put us there. <laughs> Do we have a Facebook? That is the sole exception. Okay. I think that's a good exception <laughs> to have. I, I, I just, you guys. No, let's not. That no, but we good. got the yeah. Instagram and we've got the threads. Threads, yeah. We are on Twitter. We're, so we're on X. That's yeah, more whatever. obligatory than anything else at this point. <laughs> yes, please don't talk to us there. 
But most importantly, come back next week. Next week, we are watching the last movie of Tom Cruise's miracle year of 1983. The fourth film that he releases Whoa. in 1983. And the third in a row in which 22-year-old Tom Cruise plays a high schooler. Here we go. Michael Chapman's R-rated high school sports movie, All the Right Moves. This one is a little hard to find online. It is available for purchase or rent from Apple. Okay. I don't think the other services have it. Oh. It was on Hulu for a while, but doesn't appear to be so anymore. Do what I do. Use your local lending library. I'm sure they can track down a copy of 1983's <laughs> All the Right Moves. And that is going to do it. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. See you then. See you then.